Last week in the book of Isaiah, we saw how, as human beings, our pride is our downfall. The story of humanity is a story of trying to put ourselves in God's place, trying to exalt ourselves. But last week, we saw how our attempts at self-exaltation actually bring us low. They bring us low because in reality, there is only one who is truly exalted the Lord God. And one day, He will be seen to be exalted. He will be seen in the splendor of His majesty. And so, our passage last week ended with this challenge for us. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? That was the challenge. And it begs the question, why do we trust in humans? What is it we are looking for when we trust in humans? Well, what our passage this morning is going to show us is that we're looking for security and significance. Deep down, that is what we are all looking for. And this passage will show us if we look to mere humans for security and significance, we will always be disappointed. Maybe sometimes mere humans will get our hopes up in our search for security and significance, but we will always be disappointed in the end. And that is because God alone is our shelter and our glory. We're going to pick up at Isaiah chapter 3 verse 1, and we'll read through to chapter 4 verse 6. If you're using a Green Church Bible, it's page 688. In the large print Bibles, 1064, Isaiah chapter 3. Just to introduce this, the end of chapter 2 took us into the future. It described the future day when the Lord alone will be exalted. But now at the beginning of chapter 3, we are again in the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day the present as far as Isaiah is concerned. And we discover that for all its current prosperity, Jerusalem is a staggering, falling city. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. The hero and the warrior, the judge, and the prophet, the diviner, and the elder, the captain of fifty, and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored." A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, you have a cloak, you be our leader, take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day, he will cry out, I have no remedy, I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. 
They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous, it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. My people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. And that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and anklets and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors, and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your man will fall by the sword. Your warriors in battle, the gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, we'll eat our own food, provide our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. This is God's Word. And the breakdown of this passage is pretty clear, I think. There's a long description of the falling city of Isaiah's day, and that is followed by just a brief glimpse of the renewed city that is to come. The new Jerusalem, which we've already glimpsed at the beginning of chapter 2 in this book. But what we start with is a description of searching for security and significance in the falling city. 
And what we'll see is this description of ancient Jerusalem has a wide application. It applies to every city and every society that trusts in mere humans. Look again how chapter 3 opens. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. Back in chapter 2, Jerusalem was described as being full of silver and gold. So the place is prosperous. But what we're seeing is that prosperity is fragile and it's soon going to disappear. There are no details here of how or when the city's supply and support is going to be taken away. It sounds like the conditions of a siege. But at this point, we don't need to worry about how this is going to happen. What's important is it will happen. The nation's prosperity is going to take a big hit. And it's not just prosperity in terms of food and water. Equally significant is that in verses 2 and 3, God promises to take the nation's leadership away. You'll notice there's quite a mix here of all kinds of leaders. There are military leaders, the hero and the warrior, the captain of 50. Then there's what we would think of as political leaders, the judge, the elder. Elders were the heads of local communities. There's also spiritual leaders, the prophet. And on the more wacky end of that, the diviner and the clever enchanter, that's talking about spiritism, attempts to communicate with the dead, which is specifically forbidden in Scripture. And then there's the counselor and even the skilled craftsman, carpenters, plumbers, people who do reliable work, people who fix stuff for you. All kinds of leadership, God says, are going to be taken away. Some of it's good, some of it's forbidden by God, but all of it constitutes what people look to for their support and their security. And what is going to be left when that leadership is taken away? What's going to be left is a great lack of wisdom and experience. The lack of leadership is going to be filled by incompetence and oppression. Verse 4 says, I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. Now, that may be talking about literal youths and children being in charge, but more likely this is describing how the replacement leaders will lead. They will be like children and not in a good way, not in an endearing way, They'll be impulsive, they'll be petulant, they'll be selfish, they'll be inconsistent. And when that kind of leadership prevails at all levels of society, what's the result? Verse 5, people will oppress each other. Man against man, neighbor against neighbor, the young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored. The sense of that is the one who ought not to be honored will rise up against the one who ought to be honored. This is society crumbling. And look at the attempts to fix it in verse 6. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, You have a cloak. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. This is just desperation. 
There's no sense of, are you qualified for the job? It's just a case of, you look the part, you have a cloak, and that makes you look sort of authoritative. Maybe people will listen to you, and you can bring some kind of order. When we read this, it's hard not to think of current political leaders. If you pay attention at all to U.S. politics, do you ever think, are these really the best candidates you could come up with? Doesn't it seem just like this? You have a cloak, you be our leader. You have a lot of money or you have a lot of name recognition. Maybe you can pull us all together somehow. And even in our own situation here in the UK, which in comparison to the US looks a lot, lot better, but doesn't it seem here even like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of leadership. And not just national leadership in politics, but at all levels. Now, I don't want to deny for a moment there are plenty of people at all levels of leadership who are doing their best, truly, and often doing a good job. We can be thankful for that because good leadership is a mercy, it's a blessing. But those instances of solid leadership don't they just highlight the prevalence of childish, incompetent leadership? Don't they highlight the fact that many people refuse to step up and provide leadership when they could? You can see that in verse 7, where the potential leader cries out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. In other words, I've got my own stuff to worry about. I'm not interested in helping the people. How often do we hear that today? Don't look to me for leadership. It's not my problem. It's somebody else's fault and it's somebody else's problem. And what all this amounts to is an unwillingness to lead on the part of many. And when leaders are found, they tend to be chosen hastily for the wrong reasons, with the result that leadership is often childish. It's a well-known situation. It's certainly not limited to Jerusalem and Judah in the 6 and 700s BC. And what does all of this come from? Well, our passage is telling us it comes from trusting in mere humans. That's where it starts. This is the outcome of failing to trust in the Lord, failing to seek His wisdom, failing to bow to His authority and leadership. Verse 8 says, Jerusalem staggers, Judah's falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, they have brought disaster upon themselves. When a society suffers under bad leadership, of course the leaders are accountable for their bad leadership. We'll see that in a moment. But in fact, the society that produced those leaders is accountable also. 
It's easy to blame the leaders. But let's ask, what kind, <clears throat> what kind of society, what kind of culture would produce these kind of leaders? The answer is a culture that turns its back on God. A culture that defies His glorious presence and instead puts its trust in human wisdom and human power. A culture that parades its sin instead of confessing its sin. A culture that looks to human beings for its security instead of looking to its creator. That is where these kind of leaders come from. When any society turns from trusting God to trusting in themselves, that society, sooner or later, finds out the folly of trusting in mere humans. It staggers, it stumbles, ultimately it brings disaster in itself. And often that disaster is overseen by rotten leadership that rises up in that society. Rotten leadership that just reflects the values of the society it came from. Here in our passage, that's what God says is going to happen to Jerusalem. But starting in verse 10, the Lord shows how different His leadership is. Verse 10, Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked! Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Jerusalem and Judah are corrupt, but not everyone in that society is condemned. God's leadership is fair. He knows who the righteous are. He knows those whose hope is in God, not in mere humans. And those righteous people whose hope is in God, they're not being promised here a life free from trouble. How could they live in a God-rejecting society without experiencing trouble? But what they're promised is it will be well with them. In the end, it will be well. What about those who are not righteous? The wicked. Those who do, do trust in mere humans instead of God. Well, they will be rewarded for their wickedness with disaster in the end. Here, verses 12 to 16, focus in on the wicked leaders especially. God will hold them accountable for their injustice, for plundering the poor and grinding the faces of the poor. God is a good leader. He deals with injustice. He is our only hope for true, lasting justice. We'll never find perfect leadership among human leaders, but we do find it with God. He's the only one who can provide real security and... He's the only one who can provide us with real significance. So far in this passage, it's the men who've been spoken about. At this time, the leaders would have been almost exclusively men, and that has been directed at them. But when we read this earlier, you may have noticed, I'm guessing you did, an unusual statement in verse 12. Speaking about the bad leadership in Jerusalem, God said in verse 12, Youths oppress my people, women rule over them. 
Now, the first part of that is not new. We heard about childish leadership earlier in the passage. But why are women mentioned there in verse 12? Well, we find out down in verse 16. This is not about women in general. This is about a specific kind of woman. Verse 16 tells us, The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. These are the wealthy women of Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, and the source of their wealth is their position in society. They're wives and daughters of the leaders. And the reason they were mentioned back in verse 12 is that they're as much to blame for the oppression of the poor as the male leaders are. Why is that? It's because these ladies have influence. They may not officially be in power, but they have power. They could use that power and influence for good. Next week, Dan is going to be preaching from the book of Esther in the Old Testament. And Esther was a lady who used her power and influence well, incredibly well. But these ladies don't. They're using their power and influence to pump up their own pride and arrogance. The picture in verse 16 is a bit ludicrous, actually, if you try to imagine it. Flirting eyes, swaying hips, jingling jewelry. I'm not sure what an outstretched neck looks like, but it sounds uncomfortable. And it certainly seems like too many things to be trying to do all at once. The picture is supposed to be ridiculous. Yes, these ladies are proud. Yes, they are haughty. But they're also desperately needy. They are craving attention. Each bit of this is an attempt to get attention. With how they look, with the looks they give, and with the bling they're wearing. If you glance down to verse 18, you hear more about their finery, which is literally their beauty or their glory. It consists of their finery, bangles, headbands, crescent necklaces, earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, anklets, sashes, perfume bottles, charms, signet rings, nose rings, fine robes, capes, cloaks, purses, mirrors, linen garments, tiaras, shawls. Now, this is not an attack on beauty. Nor is it an attack on beautiful appearance. It's not an attack on smelling nice. I put aftershave on this morning, even after studying this all week. It's not an attack on beauty. The Bible as a whole recognizes physical beauty as a good thing. It recognizes jewelry and being well-dressed as a good thing. When a woman poured very expensive perfume on Jesus, Jesus said she had done a beautiful thing to him. This is not an attack on beauty, but the Bible also points out again and again that what matters more than outward beauty is inward beauty, character. That is the truest beauty according to Scripture. But here, 
whatever beauty there is, it is entirely superficial. Because beneath the outward beauty, the outward allurement, there's pride, haughtiness. And at the very same time, there's great neediness. The attitude behind all of this show is, notice me. Turn your head to look at me. Admire me. Want me. It's a desperate grab for significance. And would any of us want to say that things have changed in our society today? How much of social media is based on this very simple principle? If I present myself right, people will look at me, maybe they'll like me, and maybe that way I will find significance. And I'm well aware that men are into this just as much as ladies. The picture might look a bit different in men's case. It might be more about muscles than about swaying hips. But it's the same desperate search for significance. Look at me working out. Notice me. It's desperate. It's sad. But at the same time, it is haughty as well. It's pride. It's looking to human beings to provide what only God can provide. It's based on the idea that being admired by other people makes us significant. And so in the end, it is defying the glorious presence of God. As if there's something we need more than His attention. As if there's something more valuable than His love. Maybe this morning you are making this very mistake that we're talking about and reading about. Maybe you're caught in this impossible self-destroying pit you can't get out of. Maybe you're stuck on this treadmill you can't step off. Trying to find your significance in what other people think of you. Trying to find your affirmation in getting second looks because of your looks or your clothes, trying to perform in attractive ways. That's exhausting. And ultimately, it's going to fail. You cannot find true, lasting significance that way. The American novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald found that out about a century ago. He and his wife Zelda chased after significance this way. And for a while, for a short while, they were the celebrity couple of Europe as well as America. But here's how Fitzgerald described the result of their search for significance. He said, the strongest guard is placed at the gateway to nothing. Maybe because the condition of emptiness is too shameful to be divulged. In other words, why is it so hard to break through to the point where the world notices you and admires you and wants you? Why is the way into that status guarded so strongly? It's because those who've made it 
to those heights of popularity. They don't want anyone to know that there's nothing there. They don't want people to realize that's an empty place to be. Who wants to let that secret out when they've spent their whole lives trying to break into that special group of the admired and the wanted? And so the secret stays secret. And we all keep chasing significance through human admiration, not realizing it's the gateway to nothing. Here at the end of chapter 3 in Isaiah, these ladies in Jerusalem are told, if they keep looking for significance in outward beauty and human admiration, they are going to lose it all. All the physical beauty, all the stuff and accessories they put so much store by, it will turn to sores, baldness, sackcloth, and stench. Not nice. But it was never substantial to begin with. Their outward appearance was always just dressing up haughty, desperate hearts. And now their appearance is as unattractive as the hearts it was hiding all along. We said earlier, this falling of Jerusalem sounds like it's describing a siege that's going to come on the city. And the tail end of chapter 3 seems to be describing the aftermath of a siege. When many of the men have died in the battle, others have been taken away into captivity. And with that in mind, look how chapter 4 verse 1 speaks about these ladies who were once so haughty and were strutting about. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, in that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, we will eat our own food and provide our own clothes only. Let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. These ladies put their hope and their attachment to the leaders of Jerusalem. They put their trust in their own looks and appearance. But now their outward glamour has been stripped away. And they're reduced to fighting over the few remaining men. Looking for some security and significance in being called by the name of one of the men. We'll provide for ourselves, they're saying. We'll trawl around the ruined city looking for bits, for crumbs, for scraps. We'll not expect you to give us anything to eat or to wear. Just give us some shred of dignity and security by letting us share whatever shreds of dignity and security you might have. Like the man earlier in the passage grabbing the one guy who happened to have a cloak and saying, you be our leader. At the end of this section, what we're left with is a sense of the vulnerability, the desperate fragility of everyone who trusts in mere humans and the security and significance mere humans can give us. We don't live in ancient Jerusalem. We're probably not facing an imminent siege by a foreign army. We're probably not facing deportation to another place in exile. Our supplies of beauty products don't seem to be in any danger of drying up. But even in our society, 
We don't have to look too far. We don't have to dig too deep to realize how vulnerable we are when we trust in mere humans. Even in our country, there can be incredible failures of justice, like the post office horizon mess, which is still not being justly resolved. And what about the continual push for assisted suicide? The continual wearing away so that that will happen. Put your trust in human leaders and they will repay your trust by finding ways to lead you to end your life early. Or feel like a burden if you don't end your life early. And we know plenty about the casualties caused when we try to get our significance through social media. Searching for security and significance in the falling city will ultimately leave us desperate. We have to look somewhere else. And our passage closes with a picture of finding it all in the renewed city. We've noticed already this book alternates between focusing on the city that is and the city that will be, the new Jerusalem. And in these final verses, we have our second glimpse of the new Jerusalem. We saw it first at the beginning of chapter 2. And what is emphasized here in this glimpse, and it is just a brief glimpse, what's emphasized is that the things we search in vain for in this present city, they will be provided by God himself in the future city. First, there's significance. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. The NIV has given this section the heading, the branch of the Lord. And in verse 2, the translators have given the word branch a capital B. That's because in some of the other Old Testament prophets, the Messiah is referred to as the branch. And there's no doubt the book of Isaiah will have plenty to say about the Messiah, but we haven't got there yet. The section headings in bold were not in the original text. They're just there to help us. But occasionally they can be a little bit unhelpful because sometimes a branch is just a branch with fruit on it. And that's almost certainly the case here. The focus of chapter uh, 4, verse 2 is not the Messiah. The focus is the glory and significance God provides to those who trust in Him. Of course, the Messiah will be at the center of that, but He hasn't entered the picture yet. Verse 2 is a picture of a flourishing place, a fruitful place. Down in verse 5, the word create is used. That word is used very sparingly in the Old Testament. So it's significant when the word is used. It tells us this is not just a slightly spruced up old Jerusalem. This is a new creation. It's a city, but it's described as a garden. Verse 2 speaks about the fruit of the land. The new Jerusalem will be a new 
Eden. It will be a place where all peoples to come together like a city, but it will not be a grimy, cramped, gloomy place like so many cities are. It will be a garden city. Beautiful, glorious, fruitful. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, we heard about the finery of the ladies in the falling city. We said the word literally means glory. They looked for their glory in outward appearances and they lost it all. But here, chapter 4, verse 2 uses the same word again, this time actually translating it as glory. And the point is, we cannot get glory for ourselves. Only God can provide us with lasting, substantial glory. And how do we enter into this? Well, verse 2 says this is for the survivors. It's for those who have emerged on the other side of the loss and the judgment described in chapter 3. Back in chapter 1, Isaiah told us when judgment comes, it will purge away dross. It will remove impurities. So these are the people who have survived the purging. How have they survived? They've survived because God made them pure and holy. They're not swept away in the purifying process because they are pure. And yet it is not a purity they achieved for themselves. Look at verse 3. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. These washed women are some of those we heard about in chapter 3. Those who at one time had nothing but superficial beauty. Now they're washed and they're holy. And the men in this renewed city, they're some of those we heard about back in chapter 1. Those whose hands were at one time full of blood, God said. Guilty of harm. And now, just like the women, their stains are washed away. How did God do it? By a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. God's Holy Spirit will cleanse those who turn to God in repentance. When they put their trust in Him instead of in mere humans, God will purify them. When His judgment falls on the falling city, these purified people will survive. This is another of these little previews Isaiah gives us of the work of Jesus Christ. We've seen several of them already. Later this book will tell us our cleansing comes through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. That will happen hundreds of years after this prophecy. There's no greater significance than to be part of God's new creation, washed clean by God Himself. There's no greater security either. Our eternal significance and security rests not on us, but on His great mercy and grace. Nothing on earth can compare to that. 
Nothing mere humans give us can compete with that. And look how the significance and security are described in verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. Way back in Israel's history, when the people were delivered from slavery in Egypt, God, God traveled with them through the desert. And on that journey, the signs of His presence were a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. That previous cloud and fire overshadowed a very limited spot, just the tabernacle tent. That was the special place of God's presence. But in this future city, we're told the whole place will be filled with His glorious presence. It will fill all of Mount Zion. And then we have this word canopy in verse 5. Unusual word. It's a word that's used elsewhere to describe a marriage chamber. A place for the bride and groom to enjoy one another's company. Without threat. What we're being told is God's new Jerusalem will be a place for the bride and groom to enjoy one another's company without threat. In the Bible, the bride and the groom is God's recurring picture of Himself and His people. He's the groom. His people are the bride. In the New Testament, the picture is developed. We're told Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the groom and His bride is the church. The church is the bride made beautiful by the groom, holy and blameless. The book of Revelation describes the future wedding of the Lamb. That's Christ and His bride, the church. And here, hundreds of years before Christ came, we have a preview of what is to come. In chapter 3, the start of chapter 4, we saw ladies pursuing superficial beauty and being badly, badly disappointed. Their superficial beauty was stripped away. They were promising to provide for themselves as best they could, scavenging in the ruins for food and clothes, if only some man will share his name with them. In some small way to take away their disgrace. It was a sad picture. But here, in God's future city, these ladies find true beauty. They're cleansed and made holy. They're part of the bride, God's people. They're called by His name. They're welcomed into God's wedding chamber. They come under His canopy, where God and His people enjoy perfect unity. Their disgrace is gone forever along with the man whose blood-stained hands have been cleansed. And together as God's people, all their needs are more than provided for. What all this is showing us is how misguided we are, how unambitious we are when we search for security and significance in this present world. 
in this falling city that we live in. We will find it all in the renewed city God has promised us and prepared for us. And yes, He travels with us on our way to that city. We're not alone on the journey. And where we're going is a place of security and significance that far outstrips anything this world can give us. And so as we travel through life in this world, as we live in our own little bit of the falling city, let's never start thinking it can give us any true security and significance. Yes, there is so much that is good here and now. There's so much to enjoy. There's so much to give thanks for here and now. But let's keep our hope in God. Let's keep our eyes on His new creation. Even as we travel there, let's make sure our hearts are already there. Our next song reminds us, if our heart belongs to God, if we've been made righteous through faith in His Son, Jesus, then all must be well for us. All will be well. Let's sing this together. <laughs>